0: Well, good morning and welcome everyone today is wednesday february 12th i don't know when i'm saying the date but it's important it's february 12th <laughs> black history month so today i am a guest host on the podcast the shift with masculinities in the mix my name is sunday i use they them pronouns um, i work in the lgbtq plus resource center as a graduate student and today i have the pleasure the honor the joy of sitting with two folks richie and Taina. um i'll let y'all introduce yourselves more
1: sure my name is Richie Reseda I use he him pronouns I do work to end patriarchy and end prisons um mostly in the entertainment industry and in prisons
2: My name is Taina Vargas-Edmond. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm the founder and executive director of Initiate Justice, and our mission is to end mass incarceration by activating the political power of the people who are directly impacted by it.
0: Perfect. Thank you all so much. So I want to apologize. I want to uh, make sure that folks knew um, this last in the last couple of weeks, we have been screening feminists on Selbach Y here at the University of Arizona in different uh, locations on campus. And today we have folks who are a part and leads of that. And so that is why we are here with Richie and Tiana um, Kaina, excuse me. Today, so thank y'all for being here this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, so, first question for y'all is: How did y'all get the opportunity to be a part and in within the documentary, the Feminist on Cell Block
1: Y? Um, so, me and and my best friend Charles started Success Stories, uh, which is the program that's kind of the subject of the Feminist on Cell Block Y, mm-hmm. in 2014. Basically, after being in prison for a couple of years, I transferred to this medium security prison where they had self-help groups and the self-help groups, in my opinion, were just really corny and were not talking about patriarchy. And to talk about like men transforming their lives without talking about patriarchy is like just talking about nothing. So, you know, I was reading We Real Cool by Bell Hooks at the time and I tried to put together this little workshop based on the book. Mm -hmm. To deliver at some of these other groups, I didn't really understand how groups worked or how programs were established, and I was 21. And most of the people who were running groups at the time had been in prison longer than I had been alive, and you know they pretty much just laughed me out of the room. I mean, not pretty much. That's exactly what happened. Um, And you know, I told Charles we got to start our own group, and we we started researching for it and putting together a curriculum in October of 2013. And then we launched Success Stories, February 2nd, 2014 was our first day. Um, and it was really important to us to reach out to young people, um, active gang members, like the kind of people that were not going to groups mm-hmm. or having those conversations. Yeah. Cause those are the folks who are at the highest risk of committing patriarchal violence yeah. and harming themselves and others. Um, so, and those are the folks who we were, you know? So yeah, we launched in 2014 and how the documentary happened was in 2015, I had released the album from prison and my friend who I knew her, well, I guess we weren't friends yet, but a journalist named Emma Emma Lacey Bordeaux, who wrote a story about some feminist work I got to be a part of when I was in high school, heard about the album and like reached out to me and I put me in quotes uh, via Facebook because I was not on Facebook, I was in prison. So really she was reaching out to Taina, Mm -hmm. who was like the one who was like really monitoring my social media at the time. And was like yo is this the same richie who did the v-day stuff in 2008 and via their conversations taina connected emma and i and emma was a grad student working on either an ma or phd in journalism something where she got to wear a fancy hat when she graduated (laughs) and she was a digital content editor at cnn and we, we just we were i was helping her with her um thesis like, it was about the juvenile justice system. So she was just, like, interviewing me mm-hmm. through the phone for that. Um, but it was kind of in passing. and Obviously, I would tell her about, like, my life and about success stories. And she was like, wow, this sounds really interesting. Could I come? And I was like, they're probably not going to let you, but you could try. Yeah. And and they did. Mm-hmm. And uh, after she came, she said, you know, I want to come back with cameras. And she did. <laughs> and they awesome. made a documentary. Yeah. Wow.
0: What What was the response like after... The documentary aired? What was the response from folks that had seen it?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say that when we were going into the process of filming the documentary, at Mm -hmm. first, Emma said, it's probably just going to be like a short, like 10, 15 minute mini doc. Um, So we really had no idea that it was going to be a full length documentary until a couple months before it came out. Um, We had no idea what was going to be in it. We, you know, we, (laughs) you know, we didn't see any of it. So I remember like speaking for myself, I was really excited to see it um, because, you know, Richard had been telling me about success stories for at that point um, for for four years. Mm -hmm. Um, But hearing it from his perspective, he would always just tell me kind of what went wrong during each um, session. He would talk about all the conflict that would come up. So, you know, from my perspective, (laughs) I thought success stories was kind of a hot mess to be honest. (laughs) And then I watched the documentary when it came out. I remember Mm -hmm. the day it was coming out. I kept waking up and like refreshing my screen to see if it was posted (laughs) Mm -hmm. on CNN yet. Um, And then when I finally watched it, I was just completely blown away to see um, the incredible, impactful work that was being led from the inside to watch people's transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, folks who I knew from the visiting room and and things like that. um, It was just really beautiful to like watch them in that different kind of vulnerable state. So I shared the documentary with everybody who I knew. Um, I ended up having like a little mini screening at my house with some of my fam identified friends. And I just remember everybody like during the documentary and afterwards just being like completely blown away and just grateful that Mm -hmm. some men are are doing this work because it's so important. Um, And it's something that, that I say in the documentary that you know, men like really need to be doing this work on themselves and with each other. Um, so I think that a lot of people who saw the documentary saw it as hope mm-hmm. that some, there are, you know, a, a very passionate group of men who are interested in doing like this deep anti-patriarchal work on right. themselves, spreading it, um, you know, amongst people, as, as Richard said, who really, you know, need it the most and maybe we're at, like at the highest risk of right. committing patriarchal violence. Um, so I, you know, at least in my experience, folks received it as, um, as an important step in the work to end patriarchy. Mm,
0: Right. Right. I was definitely having that feeling when we watched it. We screened it in the LGBTQ plus resource center and just reflecting that. There are very few men in my life that I knew that could say like, because of this trauma that happened, this is the ways that I protect myself and use violence to, you know, make myself feel like never had I heard that from anyone. And so it was really, yeah, hopeful to see that for sure. So thank you. Another question is what are some misconceptions that you noticed that folks had because of um, the documentary, maybe misconceptions about you or about the works that y'all do?
1: Yeah, I think the, the most surprise, it was surprising to me, but now it happens all the time is that people assume that our work is about getting folks out of like gangsterism mm-hmm. or getting folks out of the streets type mentality, which again, I think is very, a very <laughs> corny, limited way of understanding what we do. Right. Um, and I think it, it, that really comes from racism and people thinking that when, because it's shot in a prison, because it's almost completely men of color, um, and, People see it as like like a charity. Like people be mm-hmm. like, "It's a good thing you're doing, teaching those guys in there how to be good people." As you know, like, yeah, and, right. and because we live in a world where the average person doesn't know what patriarchy is as mm-hmm. a word, you know, um, they were attributing patriarchy to mean like gangster shit. Right. I can talk regular, yeah. um, <laughs> like gangster shit that happens in prison, like people in the streets, and like you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I remember shortly after it came out, I had to like really pushed my family to watch it. And after my little brother who like went to college, just lived a very different life than me. He's like in a fraternity. Now he's in grad school. He watched it. And that's what he said. He was like, well, it's really good that you're like teaching guys in there to be, to be good people. And I'm like, bro, that's not what we're talking about. What what we're talking about best believe it's happening at your fraternity. Mm -hmm. Like it's this, this is not, um, unique to prison right but because it's feminist work that happens in a prison people are, like mold those things mm-hmm. together um yeah i think that's the biggest and and i think most uh for, with fear of sounding dramatic like most dangerous misconception right. is that only people in prison need to talk about right, patriarchy. Right, right.
0: yeah that's something that's going on in there we don't need that out here that's not something for sure right
1: almost like as if we were trying to make people quote unquote, in there, more like people out here. Mm. Like the goal is everybody who's out is doing great and is being normal and regular. And now people who are in prison just need to be more like us who are on the outside. right?
2: And if I could add to that, there were some interesting conversations I had after it came out where I was being approached by, you know, women or non-binary folks or maybe like a little bit masculine of center who were saying like, you know, I maybe I don't identify as a man. Um, but there are definitely still ways that patriarchy has showed up in my life. So it made, um, a a lot of us like investigate, like how we're all impacted by patriarchy in ways that we all, you know, kind of like shut down our emotions, um, ways that we seek out some of these, you know, toxic masculine traits in in our partners for those of us who are attracted to men. Um, So it was something that I think was a really important conversation to have, not just for men to be doing the work on themselves, but for all of us to be exploring like how patriarchy has impacted us all.
0: Right, right. So another question for y'all, did the documentary frame or shift the type of work that y'all do now? Is it the same work? Has that changed or grown?
1: I mean, for me, it's. Um, I think w- this a very weird thing happens when when we see something on screen that all, it all of a sudden makes it seem legitimate. Mm. So we were doing, like we said, like we were doing feminist work in prison for four years before the documentary came out. Literally nobody cared. Mm. Right. It was an uphill battle to establish the group. They tried to send me to the hole for starting this group. Everything from from the official side of dealing with the prison system to the unofficial side of even even trying to get the facilitators on board to, to engage in a conversation about patriarchy was an uphill battle right? Um, for years, like one of the primary stressors in my life. So <laughs> what happened with the documentary was so fascinating. Like, you know, you don't really see journalists and cameras and stuff like that in prison. Yeah. So all of a sudden I, I was like, every few weeks I had like journalists following me around. They were like coming in my cell and like, People in the prison started treating me differently. Both both the staff and the folks who are incarcerated there started treating me differently and seeing our work is more legitimate as like now this is a, a this must be a worthwhile right. conversation because people really thought that I had made this up. <laughs> like, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to and for folks who have not been incarcerated or incarcerated for a long time, it's hard to envision how disconnected people in prison are from the rest of the world. So, people literally thought I made the it, they literally thought it was like me and this one author Bell Hooks and it yeah. was just like Richie you and, and the- this fucking weirdo <laughs> Bell Hooks talking about this weird ass shit yeah, and now we're right. all supposed to that's literally, they literally thought mm. that. Like people really thought that I made this up. People re- literally thought I made up the word patriarchy like. So, to have like journalists in there with like a recognizable brand name like CNN. Yeah. People are like, "Oh, this is a real thing." Um so it it completely transformed the way the the way that we are seen in the prison, and it put us in the position to now expand to where Success Stories is in four prisons, mm. two county jails, three reentry programs, a youth program. Like, we've been able – we're on track to be in 30, uh, 30 sites by the end of the year because we can send somebody a documentary and be like, this is what we do. And they're right. like, oh – CNN, you know, it's just clout shit. Like CNN thinks it's legit. Well, I think it's legit too. Like they might even mm. watch the, the whole <laughs> thing, but they're like, "This looks legit enough because there's a documentary about it, so we're gonna let you come here and do it." Which is great. I'm not mad at it at all. It's just, you know, you're like, there was four years before right we were grinding, and then, which is which is cool. Like yeah. it's fine, but just like to to answer the question, I think it's the documentary come out coming out has completely legitimized our work. Like I don't think I would be here. Not that you all aren't dope and wouldn't have seen the value in the work, but how else would you even right, know right, about no, it? No, that, that's like, happening. Right, right. For sure.
0: And so last night we all were at dinner and y'all were talking about success stories and initiate justice. Uh, Taina, can you tell us a little bit more about initiate justice and what y'all do there?
2: Yeah, for sure. So in my experience and, um, you know, supporting Richard throughout the course of his incarceration, um, for my professional life i worked for the Le- california state legislature for a little while i worked at a couple of different nonprofits in policy advocacy work and my experience was um very interesting where monday through friday i was like fully immersed in you know um quote unquote criminal justice reform policy and then saturday and sunday i'm in a visiting room with all of the people who would be impacted by the laws that i that i'm working on um but there was like a serious disconnect of um information for folks inside were not familiar with laws that could potentially impact them, help them come home sooner um and be reunited with their families. um and also a disconnect in terms of um, a feeling of power. you know, um, all systems of oppression are able to exist because um, the people are who are being oppressed are made to believe that they don't have power. Um and in prison, you know, that's a real thing. People are really, afraid to to use their voice in fear of retaliation and fear of, you know, getting more time added mm-hmm. to their sentence. So, you know, I would I would have these conversations with Richard and say, you know, what if we created a a liberation movement that was led from the inside out? Like what are the ways that we can connect people who are in prison and their loved ones who are supporting them with the policy work? Mm-hmm. And that is how we created initiate justice. So in line with the um, anti-patriarchy work that Richard is, is doing from the inside, you know, working towards like shifting the culture and shifting mindsets around, you know, making our communities safer for each other. Um, I was thinking kind of from like a policy framework of like, okay, well, what laws need to change to help bring people home right. from prison and keep our community safe. Um, and that's kind of where like the two overlap. So um, we we started initiate justice um, at the end of 2016 we now have um, almost 25,000 currently incarcerated members um, who get a quarterly newsletter from us that have policy updates and action items that they can take to influence policy from mm-hmm. the inside. Um, and in addition to that, we have about 170 inside organizers who are community organizers from within the prison. So they're the ones who are mobilizing our members to take action and so on and so forth. And then on the outside we mobilize formerly incarcerated people and people supporting incarcerated loved ones in the same way. Um, So we're also developing a a strong membership on the outside, um, but also develop our, outside organizers Mm -hmm. who go through a 12 week organizing and advocacy training program. And once they graduate from the program, are the leaders um, in the policy work. And um, so far, we've been able to change four state laws um, to help folks come home from prison sooner and improve, you know, conditions within. We're working on a ballot initiative this year that would restore the right to vote to all formerly Mm -hmm. incarcerated people in California. Yeah, because it's just really important that the folks who are impacted by these issues are, um, you know, not just tokenized for like right. using our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, you know, our leadership is really invested in that we're trained as like the thought leaders and policy leaders mm-hmm. in, in doing this work. Yeah, so mm-hmm. that, that's why we started Initiate Justice yeah. and um, yeah, also work to do this work through an intersectional lens, Mm -hmm. um, ensuring that all of our framing and all of our organizing work is, you know, anti-patriarchal, anti-heteronormative, you know, anti-white supremacist, so that when we're fighting for freedom for ourselves, we are, um, you know, fighting for freedom for all of us.
0: Definitely, definitely. That's great. And then I have just a follow-up question about Initiate Justice. What does that like 12-week program look like or like just a...
2: Yeah, um, So it's divided into three sections. The first is community organizing. And in community organizing, we go over intersectionality and political education, what it means to be a community organizer, kind of like the history and framework for mass incarceration. um, And then also like how to tell your story, because there's a lot of stigma associated with being impacted by incarceration. The second part of the institute is um, state policy advocacy. So we learn in-depth the overview of the state legislative process, um, how a bill becomes a law, Mm -hmm. how to participate in legislative hearings and meetings, and then we actually go up to the Capitol for a lobby day. Um, And then the third part of the training is knowing your rights. So we go over um, knowing your rights in the visiting room, Mm -hmm. knowing your rights, excuse me, in terms of legal advocacy, um, and knowing your rights in terms of reentry. And then the last session, um, we have like a strategy session on how folks, after they graduate, can continue to stay involved in the work Initiate Justice is doing.
0: Mm, right, thank you so much. What are
2: some of the biggest
0: challenges that you both run into uh, with your respective organizations, like
1: with what y'all do? Before, before I answer that, I just if I could say one more thing about totally. Initiate Justice. I don't. I just feel like it can't be overstated, the gravity of what Taina has accomplished with this organization. Yeah so when like the way that criminal justice work has looked in california from my opinion for the last 20 30 years has been well-meaning but it's the equivalent of like if the civil rights movement happened and all the black people stayed home Mm. i forgot who said that rasan i think emil yeah emil some who who, uh was recently released from san quentin um like the people who are changing laws well-meaning people we're all like people who learned about this shit, like it's in school Mm -hmm. and people in prison were kind of just hoping and wishing that laws change so that they can get out and initiate justice. Taina really saw like the peg to fit into that hole. And today it is completely different than it was when, when I got incarcerated in Mm -hmm. 2011, 24,000 people being members. It's not just like a kind a passive membership of people just like, I'm a quote unquote member. And it's like, these folks are getting newsletters every quarter with right. "Here's what's changing in the law and here's what you can do to help." Um, and now folks are like active in in their own liberation from right, prison, right. like literally for the first time in California history, twenty four thousand people—that's one in every six people locked up in California right now—is a member of Initiate Justice. So there's not with that kind of volume, you walk onto a, a California prison yard and people know, right not just about initiate justice, but that there is something that they can do to transform the conditions in which they live. Same thing with folks in the visiting room who really were just like kind of at victim of the system for a long time. And that's not to like erase all of the amazing individual stories that happened or even the organizing and grassroots organizing that maybe we've never even heard of. But Taina's vision of like, yo, we have 130, it was 130 at the time. It's like 127 now. We have hundred and thirty thousand people incarcerated if they just had like three family members each who are being whose lives have been directly changed uh, by their incarceration, then we're talking about almost six hundred thousand people that's enough to yeah. get anything passed enough that's enough political pressure to do anything We just don't literally our folks don't know what political power we have right. and we're not moving in, in in sync with each other and just in, you know we're only. Not even four years in, officially, we first started doing some advocacy within the prison in the visiting room in 2015, but we didn't launch until 2016. Not even four years in for us to have one in six people. It's just completely transformed the way that people relate to their incarceration. It right. doesn't, a, a sentence being handed down by a judge doesn't have to feel like final dictate on your life anymore. It can just feel like, okay, I understand that's what you think is going right, to happen. right but I know how these laws work and I know that I have the power to change them. Yeah, Yeah. I just wanted thank to say Thank you, that.
2: yeah. Thank
1: you. Hmm? What was the question? No, I didn't answer the question. <laughs> I, know, I, I was didn't like, even know what the question was. Oh wait, was. Just, no thank just, you. You know, cause she's gonna like humbly be like, yeah we do this and like give you the bullet points of like what has been but literally like we started 2016, I was still in prison. We didn't get a grant, like we were just running off of Taina quit her job And was selling cupcakes at weddings because she is a great baker um, (laughs) and was driving Uber and Lyft to support herself and to support the organization. And we were getting like small donations. When I say small donations, I don't mean like Bernie Sanders small donations, like millions of dollars in small donations. (laughs) I mean like $200 maybe once a month. You know what I'm saying? That was for over a year. We didn't get our first grant until like November of 2017. And it was for $10,000. And we were like Yo, I remember I was on the phone. I was in this terrible prison at that time where you could, you you had to like pay to get on the phone. You already have to pay for the phone call, but you had to like, anyway, it was a horrible situation trying to get on the phone. And I was on the phone and Taina's like, we got a grant. We were like, we have $10,000, which is like amazing. But like $10,000 isn't even going to support one employee. You know what I mean? So from like 2016 of Taina slanging cupcakes to 2017, the end of 2017, us getting one grant to... When I get out uh, July of 2018, we didn't have enough money to pay me or really her. And at this point, we had another staff and folks were just kind of like, we can fund you for like six months, hopefully. I've only been out a year and a half. We now have eight staff. Our entire entire staff is directly impacted by incarceration. Mm -hmm. I don't know what our budget is, but it's enough money to pay all those folks. An office in the Bay, an office in L.A., 70 organizers on the outside, 170 organizers on the inside, 24,000 members. Like this thing is just blown up and it's not, and yes, it's because Tayna so amazing, but it's also just because the need was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just, I just think that, you know, she's not gonna say those things about herself and her work, but I think it's really important to show, like when you tap in to people's needs and their own power, Right. like not this like, let me rep the movement for clout <laughs> shit, but like when you really tap into power building and giving people the tools they need to fight for themselves, That that's what happens in three years. Uh, So our our goal is to completely end mass incarceration in California by 2040. And I have no doubt that we can do it because I was not even supposed to be home. Right. I'm not supposed to be home until March 30th, 2020. That was my release date. We worked on a law that changed so I could be home in July of 2018. I literally am not even supposed to be sitting here right now. Um, so, I have no doubt that we're going to end right. mass incarceration by 2040. And it's, again, it's not because we're so freaking great, but it's just us, just like everybody else in this room and everybody else here. Like, when we tap into our own ability to build power, we can change this system. Right, right. Yes.
0: Thank you. No, thank you. I'm so glad we did not answer that question. She's going to give you this answer, right. like, Um So, you know, and, you know, slinging right. cupcakes, Uber,
1: <laughs> like, yes. You need to see the vision, the yeah. cupcakes. <laughs> The fucking, the frosting on the fingers, (laughs) on the steering wheel. Cupcakes (laughs) falling
0: while driving. Like, yes. Thank you. (laughs) Also, there would not be frosting on fingers. We're Virgos. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm like, like, it would be perfection. Yeah. I don't know why I'm (laughs) sliding away from the mic. Okay, I'm going to answer, or ask that question one more time. The one, you know, we all know. (laughs) What are some of uh, the biggest challenges that you run into, uh, with your respective organizations and, and what y'all do.
2: Um, so I think that Richard touched on a lot of the the earlier challenges that right. we had in the beginning, um, for folks who've ever tried to start a nonprofit or an organization when you're trying to get funding and support, it's kind of like this chicken and egg situation where funders want to see that you've done work before they give you any money, but right. you need money to do, to do the, the work, work in the first yeah. place. Um, so that's something that I think like discourages a lot of people from, you know, starting, their own organizations or like, you know, especially people who might like not have the means to do that, who are the people who are like directly impacted by those issues. Um, So that was a challenge, but we've like really been fortunate to be able to overcome that over the course of some time. Other challenges that we face are in short, I would just say politics, you know, um, we still have a lot of work that we need to do in terms of changing the narrative around mass incarceration something that we emphasize a lot in all of our policy and organizing work is like the use of language, using Mm -hmm. people centered language, because it's really easy to pass a law that would put, you know, a criminal in a cage for a very long time or tell a felon that they don't have the right to vote. But it's much more difficult when you're framing it um, from the the person, like the personal perspective. So if we're talking about fathers who are incarcerated, friends, you know, daughters, um, husbands, wives, partners, um, for when we're talking about, you know, formally incarcerated people who are working to successfully re-enter society, it's much easier um, to incorporate some, like, empathy right. in this work. Um, and there still are so many, like, cultural misconceptions about who people impacted by incarceration are. You know, I'm a person with a master's degree who worked for the legislature, and it would, like, blow people's mind all the time. You know, I'd be representing the assembly member who I worked for and I'd, you know, be in a meeting and I would tell someone like, yeah, my husband's in prison and I didn't fit like the category in their brains of like who they thought like a woman with an incarcerated loved one should be or should look like. So it takes a a lot of work to show that, you know, like we just are a representation of humanity Mm -hmm. just like anybody else. And therefore we're deserving of like the same kind of, of the same kind of um, recognition of our, Humanity and investment um and i I don't like to say um second chances because a lot of people like you know we weren't even given first chances to begin right. with um with the history of like you know racism and and um you know so many isms in this country, but yeah, it's really difficult to to challenge those narratives sometimes because it's something that is so like institutionalized and like deeply ingrained in us um. And then also like really difficult for people to see why it's important to change our language and and to shift our, our mental models around these things. So that's why I think it's so important um, that Richard is doing the work that he is doing with success stories um, to really like be focusing a lot more on that culture shift. Right, right.
1: I think that our challenges are similar in terms of success stories. The biggest challenge that we face is just dealing with the carceral system. You know, all of my frontline staff, is on parole. They were all our facilitators while we were incarcerated together. And, you know, we get a bunch of bullshit when we're trying to travel, when we're trying to get into prisons, when we're, you know, we, we, this one prison had pulled our coach, there's clearance like three times and he has to drive three hours to get there. And sometimes right. I just won't let him in or, and I asked him the other day, I was like, what is their deal? Like, what is your understanding of what the problem is? He was like, they just mad that I'm on parole. And that mm. I can come back. They still see me as a quote unquote inmate, right. and now I get to come back in here and walk through the same door as they do. They literally won't let him walk through the same door. <laughs> like, li- like there's the door that all the staff walk through, mm. and then there's like a side, like weird back door that's like an emergency exit. They like, like on some straight up like segregation stuff, yeah. make him walk through the emergency exit because they like feel a way that he was just in prison last February. And now he can walk through the in and out of these doors delivering this program. Um, so that's just our number one challenge is trying to, like I said, we're delivering programs in all these places and we're trying to expand, but anytime any of us want to leave 50 mile radius, a 50 mile radius from our house, we need special permission. Right. That's completely arbitrary and up to somebody who doesn't have our best interest in mind. Um, parole is a completely pointless state apparatus. I would say in like lar- like in my work, in the entertainment industry, which even saying entertainment feels like corny to me, but like trying to do culture changing work at the, at the larger level, right? Like right. having conversations with millions of people at the time requires using mass media. And the exciting part is I get to use art and all these things that I've been interested in my whole life. But the biggest challenge there is just that tokenizing shit. Right. Like right. people, this weird, I got out in this weird moment where now like the movement is cool Mm. And, like, to be woke is connected to coolness. Right. When when I was organizing in high school, it wasn't like that. You know, we were just weirdos. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Now everybody dresses like us. They talk like us. They're, like, completely appropriated movement culture. And to be more specific, have really appropriated queer culture and, like, queer, like, ways of speaking and dressing. And, like, so now that, like, the movement is, quote, unquote, cool – all these major media players want to like portray it yeah. and use that cultural energy to sell shit, right. but they don't actually want us to have a seat at the table. So, mm. with, with fear of like sounding like Kanye West, I'm gonna just say like, they they really. I've been in multiple situations where people are like, "Yes, Richie, da 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 da." We want to be able to say that we have Richie attached to this thing. But when I'm sitting there trying to have the same creative control that they do, it's like, no, no right. you're supposed to just take your check and be on some happy to be here shit. Mm-hmm. And that that's I would say that's the biggest challenge in the media work. Right. That happy to be here. Just play your part. You're so lucky to be here. You're the quote unquote talent. Right. shit.
0: Let us put your picture up. But actually, we don't really,
1: really care. Right. Right. And you should be happy about that. Cause right. Because you're getting paid. Yeah. And this- you, maybe. Right. Getting paid is not always
0: <laughs> they're you know like we going
1: to shake maybe. Usually yeah. it's um it's for the exposure. Right. Exposure bullshit. Right. <laughs> they literally our good friend and and my collaborator and artist indigo mateo. She was going to do a do this show and it was like a corporate show. So it was like at a corporate gathering mm-hmm. and they were going to pay her like nothing. And they're like, "Well, you're going to get exposure." And I was like, "Exposure to who?" Yeah. <laughs> you're like corporate workers that are like, these people aren't listening to hip hop (laughs) like that. Like, what do you mean? Like, she's not going to blow up because she did your like gala Mm. for your 50 (laughs) members of your corporation. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, that shit.
0: Yeah. (laughs) 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 Um, I just, also wanted to go back uh, to something that you were saying about language. And I think, um, in a conversation we were having, you were talking about folks wanting to do work to like, help their folks, but then not thinking about maybe the collective of, can you speak more to that?
2: Yeah. So in all of the organizing work that we do with initiate justice, whenever we're training our inside organizers or our outside organizers, we're very clear, like we are doing like mass liberation work. Like we are fighting for the the freedom um, and equity of everyone who's impacted by mass incarceration. So a lot of times, um, in these conversations when we're talking about like who's impacted by the prison system, it's usually centered around like cisgender heterosexual men. Um, but those are not the only group of people who are impacted by incarceration. There are um, a lot of women who are currently incarcerated. Black women are the mm-hmm. fastest growing prison population in the United States um, being queer or being transgender, you know, adds all of these layers of right. oppression in a prison system, you know, when prisons are, are separated by gender um you know trans folks usually end up being in solitary confinement for most oh, yeah. of their incarceration in order to you know quote keep them safe mm-hmm. another group of folks who are invisibilized in this work are the mostly women on the outside who are supporting incarcerated loved ones oh, yeah. um, there's one in four women in the u.s who have an incarcerated loved one and one in two black women have a loved one who is incarcerated um so when we do this work like we're very intentional about like uplifting all of those experiences and a lot of times what that looks like is um, helping folks to like tap into their own identities because a lot of times they don't see like the different intersections of how mm-hmm. the carceral system has been impacting them. Um, and then we talk about allyship and what it means to also be aware of your privileges that you have and how you can support people with different identities from yours and how we can see this all as a, as a collective and, you know, even outside of like race and, and gender mm-hmm folks who are incarcerated are also kind of like divided into like other subcategories, you know, people who are convicted of violent versus nonviolent offenses, Mm -hmm. people who have life sentences versus determinate sentences. Um, people who, you know, have maybe dropped out of the gang versus, you know, people who are actively involved in, in gang activities on the yard. Um, so a lot of times we'll see folks who, you know, will fit into like their little niche and will want to be working on freedom or liberation for their loved one or for mm. other people who are, you know, in a similar situation as them. So we have to work really hard to help folks, um, like expand their like social imaginations a little bit, um, and see how all of our struggles are interconnected. And then when one of us is free, we're all free. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you. So you had talked about, um, allyship and, Today, we're at the U of A. We've been screening this with students. What are the ways that students um, can be allies, accomplices can work to support y'all's work?
1: I mean, I feel like for success stories, the easy answer is that we're always looking to get into spaces where people are at high risk of committing patriarchal violence. We're really looking to build, to make the case that talking about patriarchy um, and transformative justice can be a replacement for the criminal legal system and retributive justice. So if there are spaces there are spaces like that cuz they're everywhere but where there are spaces like that out here we would love to be connected with right. those spaces i think if i can answer the question in a different way like it's it's i would probably have to take some more time to like sit down with like student organizers and figure out what a collaboration would look like with folks who are all the way in Arizona but like at a deeper level or like what can people what can students do end mass incarceration what can students do to end patriarchy is i would say tap in with the organizations that are doing work here Mm -hmm. um the student orgs the community orgs that are doing work here like we talk about initiate justice like we were at um we were in iowa and they're like one of the questions somebody asked was like when are you guys gonna uh expand into iowa and we're like we're not like you're gonna do it in iowa you know what i'm saying it's just like we had met, when we met Ale Pablos, who's from out here, our, the first time we hung out, we were talking about like, how do we take elements of what's worked here? And so that, and she could like do it here. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. Like my encouragement to folks who are students is like, how do you take, uh, is to think about what this work would, would look like in your community right. and then, and do that work and to center the people who are most impacted by the problem in doing that work. So if and if you're not most impacted by an issue, that doesn't mean that your passion or your desire for that issue to end is not valid. It just means that you should be empowering people who have that lived experience and working alongside them to make sure that you're not spinning your wheels for no reason. Because there are people who are already experts. You don't have to study anything. You just have to find the people who are living it and then put them in the position to win.
2: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Thank you. I don't have anything to add, and you said everything I was going to say. <laughs> perfect. So we're here with an
0: audience of folks, and we have some questions that folks have written down to
1: Submit, ask, yeah. submitted. How Shout out, out to the audience. Yay. I'm Fish. so glad that we can now ignore because I was like, do I say something? Do I not? I'm I was kidding. like, I'm not looking. <laughs> but yeah. just kidding. Okay, perfect. So we have a question
0: um, for Richie. Do you feel a responsibility to share the message of
1: feminism to other prisons? Yeah. Yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You're like. Well, I think it's important to say, right. like, yeah. I feel the
1: responsibility, like, allyship is when we use our privilege to upend the system that gives us that privilege. Right. Mm. So I feel a responsibility to be and to act as an ally. Um, and I think it's important to say that an allyship is not a, a way of being. It's right. something that we do. Um, there's been moments, and I don't mean ancient history moments, like moments on the walk here where I've had to do work on myself where I was not showing up as a best ally right. um, or as an ally at, at all. So to like identify as I am a quote-unquote feminist ally is not true because there's going to be moments where I miss the mark because I've been socialized and privileged in certain ways. Right. Um, so my my greater commitment is to just act as an ally as much as possible. And to yes, do that work inside prisons, but not only inside prisons, because again, it's not, and it's not that whoever wrote that was insinuating this, but it's not only in prisons where male identified folks need to talk about feminism. Mm.
0: Yes, yeah, yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> as we sit next to. Okay, um, so another question we have is, how can people start to view toxic masculinity as something that isn't abstract, but an everyday thing?
1: What's really helpful to me is to see toxic masculinity as a toxic way of measuring masculinity. The like elements of toxic masculinity is when somebody is measuring masculinity by one's willingness to be violent, by how much money they have, or by how many women they quote unquote have, like their sexual ownership over women in particular. And we see that shit everywhere, right? We see ma- masculinity being measured like that everywhere. So just seeing it as those three things makes it really easy to like, take it out of the heady space. It does. You, you don't need like a lot of big words as long as you know what that looks like. Right. Um, in real life, you know, people don't necessarily use term like maybe here we use terms like the objectification or sexualization of women. But, like, everyday folks might not talk like that, but we hear things and see things that are propping up men for them, quote, unquote, having a lot of women. And right. they're pimps, they're players, they're whatever. Like, we see those things. So when, it, as long as we're looking out for those, like, three warning signs that we're measuring masculinity in a toxic way, we'll be able to see it.
2: Yeah, yeah and I think... It really is um, an exercise that we have to practice where we're like actively like recognizing um, the ways that toxic masculinity show up in our lives that are not, you know, maybe as obvious as like sexual harassment or assault or, you know, gender based violence. Um, But, you know, just thinking about if you're in a work meeting and you're a man and you're, you know, talking for most of the time or, you Mm -hmm. know, you're maybe like repeating somebody else's idea and like presenting it as your own, Um, you know, if there are ways that you're, you know, taking up too much space physically. Um, you know, yeah. And I think it's also like just really important to emphasize how, um, how key it is like to consistently like be open to feedback, um, Mm. to how men are, are showing up in different spaces. Because I know I personally have spoken with a lot of men where I've given them feedback and I said, Hey, you know, I think you're showing up a little bit patriarchal here. Right. Um, and they, you know, didn't see like how the way that they were showing up was harmful because it's so like deeply ingrained in them. Right, right. And it's not until, you know, someone, you know, like raises it that they even notice it. But at the same time, it's not like only the work of non-men to, you know, make folks like aware of, um, of their toxic masculinity. Right. right. Um, So, you know, I would say that it's also on them to like take initiative and like do work and like explore the different ways. um, Yeah. Ways that toxic masculinity can look Mm -hmm. and, you know, do some like deep self-reflection on like how they show up.
0: Yeah, definitely. Just and what you're saying, too, of of that toxic masculinity isn't just these like really overt violent things that happen. I think that sometimes, especially on colleges campuses, that's what we talk about, that those are the things that are bad and everything else is not as bad or, or different things like that. And, and what that actually means and what we're saying when we allow folks to to believe that for sure. Cool, thank you so much. Um, another question we have is, how do you challenge your friends on their bullshit, but still maintain friendships?
2: I can start. I had a, a conversation with a friend Monday morning that was kind of like a, a tough conversation um, because what had happened was Um, a group of friends of us like we were all supposed to go on a hike together Mm -hmm. and then I realized that like all of the women said that they didn't want to go so if I had gone it would have just been me and the men in the group and one of the men in particular it's not that he does anything like particularly harmful I'm not afraid for my safety or anything like that but he just has like a real like machismo attitude Mm -hmm. and you know I'd like frequently have to like check him on certain things and I texted him and told him like look I'm not going on the hike just because I don't want to deal with all of that like masculine energy right now. And um he really like felt a way about that. And I had a conversation with him and I said, look, like I respected you enough to like tell you the truth and not yeah, like yeah. make up an excuse like, oh, I was tired. I had work to do or whatever. But I, you know, like had like a really deep conversation with him about like the small ways that that I experience him, you know, in, in being patriarchal and, you know, ways that I just, you know, I just set a boundary and said, you know, like I don't want to deal with this right mm-hmm. now. And at a certain point you know, the conversation was just kind of like spiraling and he wasn't being like fully accountable. Right. And I said, you know what? Like I've exhausted my capacity to have this conversation with you. I have extended this much grace because we are friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm going to like put a pin on this conversation. I invite you to just like really like think about the things that I said and let's talk about it another time. Right. Um, so I think it really is just key to like be honest with your friends and to set boundaries with them if you feel like accountability right like isn't happening and sometimes it works and you can still maintain the friendship and sometimes it doesn't. And you know, maybe that's okay. You don't need that right. friend that bad anyway. Yeah. <laughs>
0: For sure.
1: I think, yeah, I really appreciate um, it. It's, so the answer to that question is going to look different depending on like where we lie in the privilege spectrum. Right. right. So as somebody who identifies as a man, as somebody who is a cis man, it's, it's just way different. Um, and I think for men and cis men in particular, there's the way to have that conversation without losing your friends is to one, like enter the conversation, knowing that it's a conversation that someone had to have with you. Mm. Like when we had a huge turning point in success stories, when we stopped teaching people about patriarchy and we started having conversations with people about our collective patriarchy. Right. And yeah, just like I'm, get at somebody understanding that you have the same shit and that level of humility will show. And now you can just have a conversation. Right. And also I, the, the second thing I would say again, specifically for men is to like, take yourself out of it. Like it's not about being right. It's not about, like sometimes, I don't know if other people do this, but I'll have a conversation with one person, but I'm really having a conversation with someone else. Mm. Like I'm really like thinking about what would this person say about what I'm thinking right now. Let me say all the right things so that when I tell this story later, I can say, I said this and I said this and look how fucking woke I was. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Mm. That is not helpful. <coughs> it's yeah. not helpful right. to like, we see that all the time where somebody like, if you're just like using all this f- fancy like language to somebody who literally doesn't know what you're saying. The- just so you can turn around and be like, yeah. And then I told him that that was some fucking trans misogynist shit that he did. And th- like, that's not actually helpful no. to this. That's not gonna change this person. Again, I'm talking to men. Right. Like, if you are not a man and you're doing what you need to do to defend yourself in the world, having conversations, please have that conversation however you need to. But for men, it's not like having conversations with another man is not an opportunity to try to get cool points with feminist people who are not present right. in the conversation. Yes. It's if you, you should speak to be understood. Take yourself out of it. It's not about looking cool, or um, if they buck back at you and turn up on you. It's not about. It's not about you. So whatever they say, it doesn't matter. Just have it in a in an honest way, in a humble way, in a way that understands that you have your own patriarchy, and in a way that they can understand, and then let go. Um, and the last thing I'll say about it, we we're doing a workshop. I was supporting a feminist ally workshop at this fraternity at USC like two nights ago, and this dude was like, yo, but like, uh, if I'm in a group of guys and, I, and they're saying misogynist shit and I like call it out, like they're all gonna turn against me. No one's gonna listen to me. They're gonna start laughing. They're, someone's gonna make a joke. And I'm like, yeah, they're just, I, what I told them was they're just dealing with their discomfort. Right. They're likely gonna deal with it by either t- telling jokes or getting aggressive, but you already won just by saying something because you showed them at the very least that it's not okay to do that around you. Right, and that is so. Their understanding that this is okay in the world just got smaller by one person. Mm-hmm. And you already won. Whatever they do after that, you don't have to engage. You don't have to respond to the jokes. You don't have to get turned up with them. You don't have to do anything. Right. You already won just by being a person in that moment that showed that that shit is not okay. Right, right,
0: right. And I think that kind of connects to like a conversation that we had when we screened it um, in the center of just like how much work that takes to like within yourself to know mm-hmm. that I can say this and when folks clap back or whatever I don't need to actually don't need to hold that because that's not mine that's their own shit but how much time that takes to not be defensive or to get on some shit where you're trying to level with them and how much work that takes and how and how sometimes that work can be like so oh, sorry I just slumped in my seat <coughs> for folks that can't see but like how that can just be so that, that's difficult it's that hard. is hard um because of all the shit that we have going on in us within like pride, you know, pride and just wanting to sound uh, perfect, like all these things. And so, yeah, thank you for. yeah.
2: Well, and if I could just add no, to for that, sure. I would say, you know, the, like having like that kind of situation and being like a non-man in that situation. And you're basically like trying to like defend like your own humanity. right? And you're talking with somebody who's like essentially saying like, you know, your humanity doesn't really matter to me. It's more important to me to be right or, you know, to believe like these long held beliefs that I've had for so long for whatever reason. And it, it, it feels, you know, not to be hyperbolic, but it feels like violent, you know, it feels like, um, you know, like I am not being seen, I am invisible. And that can like be so triggering and elicit like so many emotions. So that's why I say, you know, it's not, always on us to have like those conversations with people. Like, you know, right. if you feel like you have the emotional space to be able to do it in some moments, then great. But, you know, always, you know, just keep in mind, like, you know, have that boundary, like ready to go and like, you know, right. Pull it up like whenever you need to, because we, you know, have to, you know, protect ourselves and shouldn't be in situations where we have to be like defending our basic humanity all the time.
0: Right. Right. And knowing when I think, you know, for a lot of women of color, uh, queer, trans, trans, uh folks non-binary folks of color like i think that and as i identify myself within that i do feel a lot of like pressure to continue that and so even learning to be like starting to have that conversation and being like wait (laughs) i thought i had the capacity i was going to work through this but actually never mind and actually knowing and and realizing that like oh i don't have it today and it is not my job to do this um so have a good day
3: right (laughs) and i'ma move it on
0: (laughs) right for real but it's hard. It, it can be hard to feel like, wait, but if I don't say this, well, for me, I'll speak for myself. Of, if I don't say this right now, then, like, you may think it's okay, and now we're right. going out, but then I'm like, say all these things that.
1: I think it's important to say, Sunday, like, if you, in any situation in which you have to, like, defend your humanity in an oppressive situation. If you decide not to do that, you're not like failing the movement.
0: Right. I think right. there's
1: like an idea in the movement where we're like, we have to push back every time or we're somehow failing. But I, I would say to the contrary, you're actually investing in the movement by investing in yourself. Right. I had made a decision for myself. I am not pushing back against white people's racism. I'm not. When my non-black Latinx friends use the N-word, I'm not gonna say shit. I'm going to say shit to the to my non-black Latinx homie that I do fuck with and be like, yo, talk to the homie. like, Or like, I'm just not going to do that. When my homegirl fucking pulls up and she's like white passing Latina and she has fucking box braids, I'm not going to do that. And I'm bringing up race examples hmm. because that is a situation in which I'm actually right. impressed. Right. Like, I'm just because I realize because then I have the capacity to come do this. Right. Then when the, when the male homie does say some bullshit, I do have the capacity to engage because I didn't, Waste it on trying to defend my humanity in this fucking I'm just not going to do that for myself That's now every once in a while I might but I had to realize like where am I the most effective? Where do I want to place my energy? I'm more interested in placing my energy in in being an ally in situations in which I'm privileged Rather than the uphill ass battle of trying to convince somebody that I'm a worthwhile human being when they have privilege that I don't. And right. I really yeah. encourage folks to see that as an investment in the movement. You do not have to call out shit if you don't want to. Yes. Thank you.
0: I feel that. I'm writing that. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: okay, cool. Thank y'all so much. So we have a few more questions. So how do y'all help folks understand that the expectation of emotional labor is also patriarchy?
2: Yeah, I think that's kind of like in line with the the conversation that, that we're, you know, having right, right now, like, you know, making it very clear like Something that what I'll say is like, I'm having this conversation with you because I have like the emotional space to do it right now. And I'm showing you grace. Like I I make it very clear, like I am showing you grace right now by making the decision to do this. I don't have to do this. Um, I'm not doing this, you know, like for myself right now. Like I am doing this because I'm investing in, in your growth and your humanity right now, but this is not something that I am required to do. Um, And in situations where I don't have that space, like I am just very clear, like, yeah, it it is, yeah, I'll, I'll say straight up like it's a patriarchal expectation for you to expect me to do this. One of my favorite phrases that I love to use is Google is free. Like mm. if you have a question, you can look it up. You can do the research on your own. Like that is part of, of being an ally is, you know, putting in the labor right. and not, you know, expecting us to do it all the time. If I do have like the space for it, then I'll, which I, I did with my, my friend the other day. And the example that I use is I'll try and give like an example of like, well, how you, how would you feel if somebody put you in a situation like this? Mm-hmm. And you know, this man who I was talking about, he was formerly incarcerated. So I said, you know, how would you feel if you had someone who has never been to prison, who started calling you like a criminal and a felon and an inmate and all of these things. And every time you push back, they would have some like excuse for, you right. know, like why they still want to use those words or whatever. I was like, cause this is what you're doing to me right now. And he was just quiet. And then that was when, I, like, I put the pin in the conversation, and I was like, "Okay, sit with that, and we can come back right. later on."
1: The only thing that I would add to that is that the first step to understanding that expect expecting emotional labor is patriarchy. The first step to that is seeing emotional labor as labor.
0: Mm. Yes.
1: Um, which which may take you know it takes training for folks. Like we, we weren't trained to to see emotional labor as labor. A way that it was explained to me that really stuck out to me it was like the more things you have to deal with or think about are like balls that you're juggling. So people who are more oppressed are juggling more balls. And when you're expecting somebody to explain something to you, to support you in something, to hold space for your emotions, you are becoming another ball that they have to juggle. And that, that is, in fact, labor. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the other side is how are y'all both doing
0: work? to expand your own understanding of patriarchy to be more inclusive of how patriarchy impacts queer folks, specifically trans women and femme identified folks?
2: I mean, I try and do my best to practice what I preach. Um so I, you know, actively seek out literature and like articles and things like that to to read up on. Um I like, you know, I follow the news and, you know, see certain things that are happening in the world and especially like keep an eye out for things that like maybe challenge some of my core beliefs or challenge, you know, things that I believe to be true because I feel like, um, you know, like our movement is like constantly like evolving and growing, Mm -hmm. like, you know, not that things are new, but we're um, like identifying language for things in in ways that we haven't done before. Um, so for me, it's just um, a part of my practice to like continue to stay open-minded. And if there are things that I'm like learning about that feel, um, maybe like a little bit like tough for me to Mm -hmm. grasp or, you know, like tough for me to, to understand or empathize with, um, to really like investigate, like, where is that coming from? Yeah, You know, like reevaluate like my own privileges in the world and, you know, just, just do the best that I can. Um, and I know that there are going to be times when I mess up, there are going to be times, um, you know, when I may end up causing harm. Um, but just always like being, Aware, like, you know, being open to being checked, being right. open to being called in um, and just being open to, you know, being willing to, to do something different.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Did you finish that book? The one that you were reading, Trans History of the United Almost, States?
2: Almost, like 20 pages left.
1: I just want to read it when you're done. That was, that was something that I thought about um, when you asked that question. I feel like similarly, um, just living in an openness to grow. Right. Like, and that's, I want to use that wor- word instead of like being checked, but sure, like being checked, like just understanding that as a cisgender person that I have privilege, I'm going to show up problematic. Like, that has been the biggest help for me in our work. Like you're going to be problematic. Right. Like, so there's no, there's, there's no suspense. There's no, way, there's no if, surprise ending. You know what I'm saying? It's like, like when
0: that happens, when it happens and it will,
1: <laughs> and it will, how are you going to respond? Right. Right. So I try to live my life in that way where I'm like, when I have that moment, how am I going to respond? Let me think about that now so I don't have to apologize for it later. So there's there's that piece and then there's also just the piece of like just being in like real community with with people, you know what I'm saying? Like I, shortly after I got out, um, one of my homies who's non-binary identifying was like, yo, your work is super dope but it's also very binary. Mm. Yeah. And that that's, you're really missing like a bigger part of the patriarchy conversation if your whole conversation is happening in an assumed gender binary right um and those kind of moments are the ones that we only get to have when we're in genuine community with folks and not not freeloading community like with success stories we're developing a curriculum for multi-gender spaces and we're like looking and and seeking to hire people right. who have multi-gender experience to help us create that so it's like we need to go out and seek out, similarly, like I was saying earlier, people who have the lived experience to help inform us on how to do that. Yeah,
0: Thank you. I think the big piece too is just knowing that it's not if. I think we, especially in academia, I guess, or the university, there is this like, I'm doing this work and I'm not gonna mess up and that can never happen. And just that rigidness to not being able to hear or to receive feedback is, is, is violent and detrimental to the work that folks are doing. Perfect. So we have another question. Um, this one says, for Richie, part of ending mass incarceration is fighting against the intersecting racist and patriarchal actions of cops and corrections officers. How do most reg- corrections officers react to your work? Did any see that they too could benefit from it?
1: So unfortunately, they didn't take our work seriously enough to even dislike it cause they didn't even pay attention. Like the even now post documentary, if you asked the cops whose like job it is to let us into the visiting room where we hold success stories, what we do there, they wouldn't be able to tell you mm. cause they just, oh, there's some fucking inmates in there talking about some old bullshit, who cares, you know? So yeah. there, we didn't have moments like that. We're, we did have moments of like cops acting out patriarchally and me having conversations with them about it. That was really interesting mm. um, because of the power dynamic And those would be moments where I'd be really afraid to have conversations because I'm like, damn, what is this person going to do? And uh, long story short, they just responded how most men respond. Like just the same, the jokes or the aggression or like whatever. Like they didn't come hit my cell. They didn't come. They just felt kind of embarrassed and did, you know, what I think human beings do in our privileges kind of showed in our face.
2: If I could add to that, I think um something that you talk about in the the documentary is like describing like state violence as like justifiable violence or you know, like that's how like Mm -hmm. society sees it. Um, because yeah, the prison system like is a patriarchal system. It's a violent system where, you know, someone, you know, causes some kind of harm. And instead of the harm being like repaired or restored, like we punish you, like we violently kidnap you from your community and we put you in a concrete cage and we treat you like shit for X amount of years. Like however long, you know, the judge determines that. And then, um, that label is on you for the rest of your life. Like that is a very patriarchal, you know, domination, like based, like way of thinking. But society is taught that that is okay. Not only is that okay. Like that, that's, great like that's how right. you know we are kept safe police officers are um you know they are the the instruments of upholding this patriarchal system right they are the the kidnappers taking people from the community and bringing them into the cages um, but how many people raise their kids to say, you know, oh, well, maybe one day you can be a, a police officer right. when it's you know, it's it's a very violent patriarchal occupation, but it's framed in this way where like it's it's justifiable. Right. So having these conversations um, when we're talking about ending mass incarceration, it's really important to frame the carceral system as the patriarchal like system that Mm. it is, um, and frame all of the, the actors in those ways. Um, so it could look like, you know, having like the individual conversations with the, the correctional officers who are, you know, participating or maybe not participating in success stories. Um, but also like, you know, framing the, the system in the way that it exists in the culture of patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Right. right.
0: Yeah. Thank y'all.
2: Do we have any other questions? Anyone
0: like to step up to the mic?
1: No pressure.
0: No pressure.
1: It's just thousands of people listening to you talk. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm like, (laughs) stop it.
0: (laughs) I'm like, well, so got to go.
3: Okay. Hey. Um, So this is Danae. My, I literally just waved at the mic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm catching your energy. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) Um, Okay, so I have like a really love-hate relationship, I think, with policy change. Because I think on one hand, when we talk about systematic change, we're talking policy and government level. But on the other hand, when we create more policies or just trying to change the policies, we're still reinforcing a system that was not meant for us and not created by us. So I'm wondering, like, how do you grapple with that in your work? Mostly, Taina, like um, changing policy, making people aware of policy and things like that. And then kind of what is your like end goal? Because I think for me, I kind of want to blow shit up and start brand new, (laughs) Um, like for us, by us. But then there's also this pervasive like um, idea of let's infiltrate the system get high up and then change within. Thanks. Yes, thank Thanks
2: you. Danae. I love that question. Um, as a policy person, I also have that same love hate relationship with policy. Um, you know, just going through like the bureaucracies and, you know, recognizing like what tactics you actually have to employ to get things done. A lot of times it's like really difficult to do that in ways that feel authentic. Right. Um, so ways that we address that are like one by, you know, like training up the folks who are actually impacted to be policy leaders. So not just like, okay, I'll bring you to the Capitol with me and you share, you know, your like heartwarming or heartbreaking story and like that's it. But like no, like what we're actually doing is like investing in you and your leadership. Like we're making sure that you understand how the process works from back to front. You understand how to advocate for yourself. You understand like how to write your own legislation and you know how how to to have an impact, how to uplift your voice and your story in ways that's actually changing the narrative and changing the laws. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about, I, I describe like what we do at initiate justice as i shifting the, the power dynamic, right? Um, Richard spoke a little bit earlier about like how many people are in prison in California. And if you multiply that by like how many of their family mm-hmm. members and loved ones are impacted by that, um, we definitely have strengths in numbers. So oh, yeah. if, um, you know, we are all like informed of like what the process is, And believe in ourselves like enough to like you know like use our voice and like use um like the knowledge and skills that we have to shake up the system then we actually begin to to shift the power dynamic um right now when we go to the capitol um and we're talking with legislators about different policies that we're working on the first questions that they'll ask are you know Um, Who's opposing it? Are are the district attorneys against it? Are the sheriffs against it? Is the correctional um, officers like union against Mm -hmm. it? Because right now, like those are the groups that are holding like the political power. Our goal is to shift that so that when we're or maybe the DAs are in the Capitol and they're saying, okay, how do impacted people feel about this? You know, how do, how do these groups feel about this? Because these are the groups that have the power. These are the groups who we are beholden to. And I have a long-term goal actually of creating, you know, similarly way we have the, the Institute of Impacted Leaders to train people on how to be advocates. Mm-hmm. I would love to create like uh, an EMILY's List or emerge like four people impacted by incarceration. So like a, a candidate training program yeah. where we're training Um, currently incarcerated, formerly incarcerated people, people supporting incarcerated loved ones, like how to run for your own offices like locally and not just, you know, like one individual here or there, but like, you know, slates in in communities. We have a goal of restoring voting rights to everyone impacted by incarceration. Um, If we did that in California, I'm I'm sure it's probably the same case here, but most of our prisons are located in rural conservative areas of the state. So if everybody in those facilities had the ability to vote, in some cities, the prison population is more than half of the population of the entire jurisdiction. What does political representation look like right. in those situations? So, you know, these are kind of like the the steps that we take, um, you know, the, the incremental moves that we make in order to, like, flip the system on its head and create um, a a, govern- a governing structure that truly works for us.
1: Yeah. I understand that policy is limited in its ability to change shit. I think that it's just one piece of it, right? Like policy can only change what culture allows it to change. So that's why me, I'm personally, and it's because I'm an artist, but I'm personally more interested in cultural work. I'm most passionate about cultural work because we can, we run up against it. Every time Initiate Justice sits down to work on, to start our bills, you know, we'd love to pass a bill that says a a one sentence bill, no more prisons, but we don't have (laughs) a culture that will support that. Right. Right. So Cultural work is what empowers policy work to happen. I think it's important to say policy work is everything for people who are impacted by incarceration. Because mm-hmm. when you're in prison, state policy or federal policy, if you're in federal prison, determines when you eat, what you eat, how long you see your family, when you get to go home, if you get to go home. Like st- Policy is extremely important. Again, within the, the the framework of we have to change culture in order to empower policy. The last thing I'll say on that and I think this is important to say because I imagine that a lot of the folks who listen to this are very like movement-minded people and people who are in the movement, is this notion that we shouldn't engage with policy or we shouldn't engage with any official forms of like change-making, whether that be voting or things of that nature, I think is an extremely dangerous notion. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand the system wasn't created by us. I understand that it is inherently patriarchal and oppressive but it does exist. And the, one of the most angering things I would hear when I was in prison was people who thought like me, who wanted me to be home, but didn't vote. Because now your desire for me to be home means literally shit. And I'm going to be in prison, and you're going to be able to be the woke person at the party saying, this system isn't for us, so I'm never going to vote. And I'm not saying that's what you were saying, Danae, at all. But, those, but, but that, that sentiment does exist in our movement. Yo, like, let's have this heady-ass conversation about I don't want to legitimize the system, so I'm not going to vote. Cool. Go ahead and do that. But understand there are people in immigration proceedings right now who can be sent away from their families, who the law needs to change for that not to happen. There are people in prison right now. There are people on death row right now. There are people fighting for their children right now, fighting for housing right now that are dependent on policy for their well-being and if you're like too woke to vote then you are too woke to win or really care about those people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we're good. Ramon, oh, we're yeah, done. We're good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. Um this was great. Thank you for uh informing us more about uh initiate justice, success stories, everything. Yeah. <laughs> everything. Um again, we had Taina and Richie here with us. Yeah. If y'all have any shout outs or anything, you all, I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't shout, know. Cousin, yeah. no, no. shout
1: out my cousin. No.
0: I don't know. If y'all thank you all so
1: much for having us. This is a totally. beautiful space. It's been so cool to share space with y'all and have this conversation. Yeah, Do y'all have any, so oh, I'm sorry.
2: No, I was just saying thank you.
0: Do y'all have any uh, in social media oh. that if we
2: can follow you or... Oh, yeah. Please follow Initiate Justice. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Initiate Justice. And if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Taina Angeli, and Facebook, just Taina Vargas Edmond.
1: Yeah. Success stories. Instagram and Twitter is at Prison Feminism. Question Culture, which is my media brand, is just questionculture.com. Um, our social medias. Not as popping as I wanted to, be. <laughs> um, and my my all my social media handle is our Richie Rosita. Perfect.
0: Thank y'all again so
1: much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at shiftingua, where we will be posting updates and other great content. You can also reach us with questions at uofamoc at gmail.com. We will be releasing a new episode in two weeks. See you soon.